everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Jared Fishman. He is the director of the Justice Innovation Lab and the author of a book I've been reading about for a long time, haven't yet read it. Uh, fire on the levy. Uh, so welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So how did you come to learn about the story of Henry Glover? So at the time in 2009, I was a young prosecutor of the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, uh, where I enforced federal civil rights laws, hate crimes, human trafficking, and police misconduct. At that time, I'd been looking for a new case, and uh, a file landed on my desk with some of the sparsest allegations that I'd seen. Uh, there was an autopsy of a man named Henry Glover, whose body had been found after the storm burned in a car behind a levee. And uh, there was an article from The Nation by an investigative journalist named A.C. Thompson that suggested that the last people to have seen Henry Glover uh, was the New Orleans Police Department. And the allegation was that the New Orleans Police Department had been involved in, in the burning of Henry Glover's body and, and perhaps even in his death. And so as a young prosecutor, I was sent down to New Orleans uh, and I teamed up with a young African-American uh, woman FBI agent. And together we began trying to figure out what had happened to Henry Glover on his last day. And, and this was um, several years after Katrina that you got involved, correct? Yes, Katrina was uh, in, in August of, of 2005. Henry Glover was killed four days into the storm in September of 2005. Uh, and yet no one really knew what happened to Henry Glover uh, until these, this article came out uh, near the end of 2008. So by the time it got assigned to me, it had been about three and a half years after, uh, after Henry had been killed. And... You know, kind of set the stage. I mean, I, I know we're all kind of aware of Katrina, but it's coming up on 20 years pretty soon here. So, I mean, what was New Orleans like at that at that point, And what was it like at the point where, when you got down there? So, you know, a lot of people tend to think of hurricanes as natural disasters, uh, unexpected natural phenomenons that destroy cities. But, but Hurricane Katrina was not only just that. It was also a disaster of, of human proportions because when the Category 3 hurricane hit New Orleans, it shattered the protective levees that surround the city. New Orleans is primarily under sea level and is protected by, by levees that, that keep the water out. 
when those levees broke, about 80% of the city began to flood. Now, a lot of folks had had fled the city in the in the lead up to the storm, uh, but many people, particularly lower income people of color, uh, without adequate means to evacuate the city, remained in uh, in New Orleans. And so, by the time of September second, two thousand five, really the only people left in the city were the police uh, and government officials, and and mostly black lower income uh, people. The storm cut off everything from water to electricity to cell phones. There was real lack of communications. Now, the part of New Orleans where, where Henry Glover was is called Algiers. It was one of the rare parts of the city that did not flood. It got damaged through, through wind and it was cut off from the rest of the city by failed electricity and all of those things. But most of the people living in, uh, in Algiers at that point believed they had weathered uh, the storm and thought that things would be coming back. What they didn't realize was just how bad it was in the rest of the city. And uh, it became clear about three, four days into the storm that that help wasn't coming. The feds did not respond uh, in terms of bringing adequate uh, backup and supplies. The tension between the community and the police uh, grew. Uh, numerous allegations of police officers running amok. There was the Danziger Bridge shooting in which police officers responded killed two people, injured others uh, on the bridge, peaceable uh, citizens just trying to get out of the city and trying to look for, for help. And so there's a lot of a lot of these moments of clash between between the police and between the people who had remained behind. And why did the federal government get involved in what looks like a murder? Well, because the allegation was against police officers, the federal government has uh, authority to enforce uh, laws where there's a deprivation of civil rights. So that can happen in a number of different ways. It could be through, uh, and most often where, where we see it is in cases of excessive force. Uh, for example, just as Derek Chauvin was, was prosecuted by both the state and the feds, um, Michael Slager, who murdered Walter Scott, that was a case I worked on, had initially been prosecuted by the states, resulted in a hung jury, uh, and ultimately it was the federal government that came in. What was interesting about this case uh, was that in the three and a half years preceding my involvement, there had been no state investigation. Uh, at that time, usually the federal government would not investigate a case uh, if there was an ongoing investigation by state officials. We would wait to see what the result of the state investigation was. And then uh, if the federal interest wasn't vindicated, then we would open our own investigation. This was a little bit unusual because no one had done anything in three and a half years. And so me and my team went down to see whether or not not only the, the shooting death of, of Henry Glover was, was a federal violation, but also the obstruction of justice that followed by numerous members of the police department, as well as some of the people who went to get Henry Glover help had been assaulted by police officers as well when they were seeking help. So those were the types of federal charges that we were looking at. As you're coming into this situation, what are you looking for? Are you looking to see if this report in the nation was accurate or how do you start these things? Right. This one was particularly unusual, partly when we when we start an allegation into police misconduct, usually we know who did it. And the question is, can we prove that they violated the law or that the action in question was, in fact, um, illegal? What would happen in this case was really there was just suspicion that the police may have been involved. And so our first step was trying to figure out who knew anything about what had happened to Henry Glover. We had to identify witnesses. 
We needed to speak to the civilians who were present. We needed to try to collect things like pictures and pieces of evidence that would help us build the case. What was really unusual about this one was we knew so little when we started off. And it's already a three and a half year old case by the time you get involved. So is everything cold at that point or were you able to start digging pretty easily? Well, things were quite cold. And not only were things cold, is that a lot of the types of documentation that you would typically find in a law enforcement case were not available. Usually in a police case, the police produce an inordinate amount of, of paperwork. They've got shift rosters and reports and videos and radio logs. And usually when you get a case, those are the first things you do. You listen to everything. It's quite easy to figure out who was on the scene, when were they on the scene, who was alleged to have played what role. You can figure out a whole org chart going in and figure out where you want to start. Here, we didn't know that. And so the we started by interviewing people who we knew had some information. And that mostly was Henry Glover's family, his mother, Edna Glover, uh, his sister, Patrice Glover, Edward King, Henry's brother, the gentleman who tried to to, to get Henry Glover help named William Tanner. And so we begin piecing these things together slowly by slowly. And on the same hand, we're trying to break through a police department that hasn't said a word about this case in many years. And so we begin a process that we used to know as peeling the onion, starting from the outside in, trying to find people who may have information, but were likely not connected to the underlying things that we're investigating. And slowly by slowly picking up information, figuring out who were the right people to talk to. Over time, we had a number of lucky breaks. Uh, this investigation uh, was well known throughout the police department, well known throughout the city. We began getting anonymous tips. We began getting photographs. Uh, there were a number of federal officers who responded to New Orleans after um, that in the week following Hurricane Katrina, and many of them snapped pictures and began giving us uh, new insights, new new leads, and. We just kept following every single lead until until we found the officers who not only had the information about what had happened, but were willing to talk to us. And did you encounter official stonewalling or was it relatively straightforward? Uh, we received stonewalling at every turn. Um, there was the official stonewalling and then there was the unofficial stonewalling. Uh, over the course of our investigation, we talked to hundreds of police officers, many of whom told us they knew nothing about what had happened. Uh, sometimes we could prove they were lying. Sometimes they eventually came clean and told us that they were lying. Other times people continued to deny knowing anything about what happened to Henry Glover to this day. Um, but over the course of the investigation, we were able to, to prove not only who was involved in the shooting of Henry Glover, but the officers who were involved in the assault of the men who tried to get help for him, and ultimately the officers who were involved in burning Henry Glover's body. But even that wasn't the end of it. Uh, there was a uh, homicide investigator who investigated police misconduct for New Orleans Police Department. He was involved in in, in numerous ways and trying to get witnesses not to cooperate with, with the federal government or, or to otherwise falsify their testimony. Uh, and, and there were people at senior levels to the rank of captain uh, who knew exactly what had happened and continued to, to deny and maintain and cover that up. So what did happen to Henry Glover? Well, on September 2nd, four days after Hurricane Katrina, 
uh, had hit New Orleans, he was trying to get out of the city. He had realized that the lights and electricity and, and communications weren't coming back. And even though he wanted to stay in New Orleans and protect his home, he realized that he needed to leave as well. Uh, Henry had no way out of the city, uh, so he he took a truck from a from a Firestone truck and was on his way to evacuate his family. When another family member asked him to go back to a strip mall and grab some things that they had taken for their exodus out of the city, unbeknownst to Henry, uh, there was a police officer on the second floor balcony of a strip mall. Uh, when Henry arose, him and his friend Bernard Calloway uh, got out of the car and immediately were confronted by this officer who was over 60 feet away on the second floor balcony using his own assault rifle, um, a 223 caliber distance sniper rifle. Uh, and Henry and, and Bernard immediately began running away from the scene, at which point uh, the officer, David Warren, fired and shot Henry Glover in the back as he was running away. Uh, not long after Henry fell to the ground near the strip mall, uh, Bernard Calloway went to get help, got Henry's brother, uh, and flagged down a good Samaritan named William Tanner. William Tanner uh, was driving through the area, also trying to find gas in order to exit us out of the city, um, but saw the wounded Henry Glover on the ground and went to take him to get help. Now, because of where they were, the nearest hospital was about 15 minutes away in a particular part of town that um, had a sheriff who was notoriously racist and um, had made very clear that he didn't want other people from New Orleans coming into Jefferson Parish. And so uh, William Tanner made a decision to go to an elementary school that was nearby. He had been there a few days earlier and seen medical supplies. So they went to this school thinking that that would be the fastest way to get medical attention. But unbeknownst to William Tanner, uh, it had actually been taken over by the special operations divisions of the New Orleans Police Department, New Orleans uh, equivalent of a SWAT team. They had set up a base here because their usual depart, uh, their usual offices had been flooded by the storm. Immediately upon arriving in the school, uh, Henry Glover, at this point, um, most likely dead or very close to dead in the back of the car, was left in the car, and the three men seeking help on his behalf were handcuffed, detained for hours, uh, and allegedly assaulted by those officers. Uh, in the meantime, uh, an officer took Henry Glover, uh, took William Tanner's car with Henry Glover still in it, drove it to a nearby levee, and then lit it on fire. I'm still trying to grasp all of this. So did police department just not pursue this at all? Um, or how did that all work? Yeah, there was never any investigation of the shooting that took place. Uh, no report was even written for three months until after the shooting. There was no investigation at all until around the same time that the federal investigation opened. Now, we had shown that a few months after the storm, Henry Glover's family had no idea what had happened to, to him. They knew he had last been in the custody of the police department. They knew he had been in the back of Tanner's car, but, but they didn't know what happened. Uh, they had made numerous efforts going to different parts of the police department to try to get information, and they, they always came up empty. Finally, in November of that year, they found a police officer who would write a missing persons report, and now Henry was in the system. And so uh, at that point, we believe that an additional cover-up happened, one that tried to distance the shooting of Henry Glover, which was now made much more clear uh, as a result of this missing persons report in the burning of Henry Glover's body, which was found not very far away. 
there was reporting that happened um, inside the police department saying that the shoot that that the the discharge the weapon discharge from the police officer had been a miss that he hadn't hit anyone and tried to make it seem like this burned body and the shooting that had occurred had nothing to do with each other. That's what we spent a lot of time unraveling, showing that in fact, well, they had a lot to do with each other. And why was this handled differently than the shooting on the bridge? Well, the shooting on the bridge was was well known the day it happened. Um, it was it was done in front of lots of people. The reporting and that came out right off the bat was was that the shooting happened. People knew about it. The, the other thing is that the police in, in the Danziger Bridge shooting said it was totally justified that they had come under fire. They were held up as heroes. Uh, one of the, the civilians uh, on the scene was arrested and charged with shooting at, at, at the police. And so there was a process that began almost immediately. Uh, and, and when attorneys for the family got involved, it became quite quick that that was a problematic shooting and that the police version of events wasn't true at all. What happened to Henry Glover happened with virtually no one around. Uh, there was very little known and there was very little push to do anything about it. But there was a lot of finger pointing as to whose responsibility it was. And because it was Katrina and because a lot of reports weren't being um, written and because investigations weren't being done after the storm, uh, it was quite easy to let this one silently slip away. So it was kind of a combination of different factors, um, the chaos of Katrina, the fact that everybody was overwhelmed, and then, um, you know, the basic lawlessness of the New Orleans police all combined to create this situation. Yeah, no one was being pressured to do or say anything differently. People were rebuilding uh, investigators who normally would have been assigned to investigate a police discharge weren't sent to investigate. And so I think a lot of people believed, you know what, the, the city is broken down. There is no sense of accountability. There was no push uh, for anyone to do anything differently. So uh, it became clear to the officers who were witnesses that the department wasn't going to do anything about it. And for many of them, they the fear of, of speaking out and coming out against what happened was was way too overwhelming. New Orleans Police Department has a long history of, of, of some pretty extreme abuse, including police officer who ordered a hit on someone who had made a civil rights complaints against him, a police officer who killed her own partner because he was complaining about stealing food from a, from a restaurant she was moonlighting at. And so I think th there was a genuine fear within many officers in the police department that if, if they spoke out, uh, at a minimum, officers wouldn't have their back, but, but many for, feared much worse. Did it ever get to the point where you were concerned about your safety? Yes, um, more, more so the FBI was concerned about my safety. Uh, at one period of time, they assigned a bodyguard to go out with me at night because they were afraid that, that perhaps the police might do something to me. There was a moment during the course of the trial when I, when I got back to my hotel room and the room was open uh, and no one at the hotel could explain why it was that my room was open. Uh, and so I had to be moved around to another room in the middle of trial. There were a number of moments uh, where my colleague, uh, who, who is a local prosecutor down in New Orleans, her alarm went off and she came home to find New Orleans Police Department officers inside her house. 
So there were a number of things along the way that that caused concern for the safety, not only of myself, but for the rest of our team. Wow. And what was the key to figuring out what happened and then ultimately prosecuting them? There was a lot of different keys, um, mostly because we had to piece this case together one piece at a time. As to the shooting uh, by David Warren, he was with another officer that day, an officer named Linda Howard, and and ultimately she became a, a key cooperating witness and and told us that that day Warren had shot Henry Glover, who was running away for no reason with a sniper rifle. Not only that, that earlier that day he had taken a shot at another civilian who was over a football field and a half away from them. We learned a lot about his proclivity to to own and want to shoot guns. He had a rather large gun collection, took numerous classes on shooting. He was almost a perfect shot. And what we learned through talking to witnesses is that he was readily passing out guns to, to officers to, to arm them, uh, as well as his his position on people who had remained behind for the storm uh, was that they were looters and animals who deserved to be shot. And so that was the mentality that that he was operating in. In terms of of what happened with with respect to the burning, I mean, we interviewed hundreds of police officers. We we ultimately got some photographs from border patrol officers who were stationed in New Orleans after the storm, the car on fire. And numerous officers took pictures of 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 Henry Glover after he had been burned. We uncovered pictures taken by officers before he was burned. And, and ultimately, what we did is we we found an officer who was at the scene as as Henry Glover's body was being burned and was able to testify to the officers who were involved. How many people were ultimately involved in this? Depends how you count involved. Uh, ultimately, we indicted five officers um, uh, with federal crimes connected to this. Uh, there were other officers who were caught up in other cases who didn't get charged in this case. There were plenty of officers uh, who saw this wrongdoing, lied about it, either perjured themselves, wrote false reports who weren't necessarily charged, but but um, nonetheless nonetheless participated in that cover up. Uh, and I'm sure that there are countless people uh, who participated in that cover up that we were never able to prove. But I mean, if you had to put like a number on that, I'm, I'm kind of interested in A, the cover up and, and B, how many people were actually watching and filming and taking pictures of this? Well, I mean, people took pictures of different things. One of the things was after after Henry Glover's body was burnt, it remained behind the levee for about two weeks before anyone came and picked it up and and, and took it to the to the mortuary that was processing the bodies. You got to remember one of the problems after Hurricane Katrina is that resources were so limited, and so you'd walk around the city and you'd see bodies left where they fell. Now, most of those people. Um, had died in the flooding, had died from exhaustion due to heat or, or dehydration. Henry Glover was was different because of all the 1,800 people who died in the course of Hurricane Katrina. He was the only one whose body was burned. How many people knew? I mean, I think there's all sorts of levels of culpability in this. There are the people who who knew about it and saw it with their own eyes. My guess is that's about five people who, who knew about the burning with their own eyes. There are plenty of people who learned about it immediately afterwards, and my guess is that everyone within the Special Operations Division of New Orleans of the New Orleans Police Department knew about it. What role do you believe that race played in this? Well, 
the Henry Glover was black. All of the officers uh, who were indicted in this case were white. Uh, what I do know is I, I feel fairly strong that Henry Glover wouldn't have been shot if he was if he was not white. Uh, there was a perception, whether it was explicit or implicit, that the people who had remained behind were criminals. Uh, we often heard the police and in the media at large talking about looters, which was almost exclusively reserved for people of color. How much of it was explicit and in, in, in how much of it was implicit? I don't know that we could ever prove it one way or the other, but but certainly uh, race and policing go go hand to hand and the way communities of color have been policed in this country are very different than the way more affluent white communities have been policed. And so I think it's it's difficult to, to take race out of the picture. And yet at the same time, uh, in terms of finding those very clear proof of intent and racist intent, that's much harder to do. And what ultimately happened at the trial? Well, we had two trials. So uh, initially we charged five uh, police officers, three of whom were convicted. One uh, was convicted of, of shooting and killing Henry Glover. One was convicted of, of burning his body. And one was convicted of uh, false paperwork and obstruction of justice that happened after the fact. I don't know how much of the book you want me to give away because these are some great plot points. I try to write it as a as a true crime thriller uh, in legal procedural so that people who read it are, are in the moment and, and going along with it much as the young Jared Fishman rookie prosecutor was going through it. So I guess spoiler alert, ultimately the, the conviction of, of um, both the shooter, David Warren, was overturned. He got a new trial as well as uh, one of the officers involved in, in the cover-up. Uh, and when we had the retrial, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you what happens in the retrial. You got to read the book. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so, but what what is the end result of all of this? I mean, obviously, New Orleans is it has has changed pretty drastically in the years since Katrina. What do you see it, uh, as the major results of this kind of thing? This investigation, along with the investigation on the Danziger Bridge, the investigation of the murder of a man named Raymond Robert by the police department and a number of other investigations, really put the New Orleans Police Department under a microscope in a way they previously hadn't. And there was a new administration that came in after the storm that wanted to build a different type of police department. They invited the Department of Justice in to do a consent decree. And what we saw in the aftermath was one of the biggest, most expensive reforms of a police department ever. Uh, they began reworking everything from hiring practices to uh, use of force practices to training. They came up with some really innovative training program called EPIC, Ethical Policing is Courageous, in which police officers are taught not only that they have a responsibility to intervene in light of misconduct, but how to do it and how you can speak out when you see injustice. What we saw in the years that followed uh, was drastic decrease in, in complaints by, by civilians, reduction in use of force, reduction in police-involved shooting. I think that the culture of the New Orleans Police Department today is in way better shape uh, than it was at the time that I was working there. Uh, as, as my friend Mary Howell, a civil rights lawyer down in New Orleans says, is they've achieved the floor, not the ceiling of good policing. Uh, they definitely have raised the bar significantly uh, in terms of a policing culture and the ability, the ability to um, be a more constitutional police department. 
but they've got a long way to go. And um, these processes and reforms don't happen overnight. They don't happen over five years. They don't happen over 10 years. They take consistent efforts. And this one has been going on for about, I guess, about 15 years now. <clears throat> it's made a huge difference in the city, but there's still a ways to go. And I also feel remiss not to ask you about Walter Scott and uh, the prosecution of Michael Slager. Um, can can you describe what that was like from your perspective? Sure. I mean, I I, I remember seeing that video. Um, I was actually working on a hate crime in Texas when when the video first came on CNN. Uh, and for me, it was uh, I've watched plenty of videos of of police encounters with civilians that wind up in civilian deaths, whether it be beatings or shootings over the course of my career. Um, but this was one of the most egregious shootings that I had seen. Michael Slager uh, fired at Walter Scott eight times as he was running away. Five of those shots hit him in the back and all of it was captured on cell phone video by uh, a man named Faden Santana. And it, it was just one of the clearest videos of a bad shooting that I'd ever seen. The state of South Carolina charged the officer with murder. And after, I think it was about a four-week trial, uh, the jury came back deadlocked. Uh, they they couldn't make a decision as to what would happen. Um, I never thought it would be a case that I would handle because the video was so clear. And yet, you know, when we, when we began talking to jurors and, and trying to understand what happened, um, it it really highlighted a lot of the divides in America between the way people see policing and the way they see the community. Uh, so then we began building a case to, to take on the defense as it was raised in the state case. And, and ultimately, we were able to dismantle a lot of the defense through pretrial motions. Uh, I had an opportunity to cross-examine Michael Slager at a pretrial hearing. And, and after that happened, uh, Michael Slager chose to plead guilty to the federal crimes. Uh, he was ultimately found to have murdered Walter Scott as a part of our sentencing phase, and he was sentenced to 20 years incarceration. One of the longest sentences to a police officer for, for killing a civilian ever. I mean, I really, you know, I followed that relatively closely when it happened. And and wasn't the hang, I mean, wasn't it like almost... 10 to 2 or something ridiculous? It depends. It depends who you ask. I think there's a version of that where they say it was 11-1 or 10 to 2. There's one that I I think more likely it was it was split 6-6. Six, six. Uh, what we knew is in, in the federal case, when it came time to sentencing, uh, defendants are allowed to submit letters in support to the judge asking for more lenient sentence. And, and Michael Slager produced four letters from jurors in that case. Uh, three jurors and an alternate who said that the video doesn't tell the whole story, that we don't believe that he murdered Walter Scott. I, I've never seen anything like that in any case that I've ever done. Um, and so it leads me to believe that more jurors were not convinced than just two. Did they explain why they didn't believe that uh, he actually killed Walter Scott? Well, I mean, part of it part of it comes down to what Michael Slager said happened. Michael Slager said he had been attacked by Walter Scott, who grabbed a hold of his taser, that he felt like his life was in danger. All of this is refuted by the video. But what is what is also true is that the video starts right before the shooting. And so it it allowed there to be space for the officer to say, no, he took my taser. Just you just don't see it because it happened before that. I was pinned down to the ground. You just don't see that because it wasn't on video. Um 
we worked quite hard to dismantle that argument because in addition to Faden Santana taking a video, he was also an eyewitness who watched the whole thing happen uh, and a very credible one at that. And so we were able to, to much more effectively take that on uh, in the federal case than, than they had been able to do in the state case. And do you think 20 years was fair for, for that? You know, I always hated sentencing as a prosecutor. You probably don't hear a whole lot of prosecutors say this because that is the metric that we often use to, to describe whether or not justice is served. Uh, one thing I've learned uh, after this is even when you win these cases, uh, nothing is bringing Walter Scott back. You know, I knew that in the two and a half years that it took to investigate this case, 2,500 other people died in confrontations with the police. Uh, and so for me, the metric of, of, of the sentence never, never seems to be the right way to calculate justice. Uh, it was within the guidelines um, somewhat. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who were calling for a life sentence. There were plenty of people who were calling for, for less. I think, I think it was a reasonable sentence under, under the circumstance. But, but at the end of the day, I, I think getting justice for, for people like Walter Scott requires a lot more than simply incarcerating their killers. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I always have mixed feelings on on sentencing for cops. On the one hand, I generally think that pr prison sentencing is not the best way to deal with a lot of these problems. On the other hand, I think a lot of police officers get away with murder, quite literally. And so it's kind of this tug and pull in terms of my belief systems. In general, you've done quite a few of these, I, I take it. What do you see out there in terms of, you know, policing and, and what needs to change? Well, I think we need to fundamentally rethink how we're policing our communities. And that's part of the work that I'm trying to do now at Justice Innovation Lab. We all want to live in safe communities. We all need to live in a society with rules if it's going to function in a safe and healthy way, but we want those rules to be enforced fairly, and we want to make sure that we're actually tackling the problems that are, are most acute in our community, and that includes violence and being thoughtful about better ways to address violence, and it means being way more thoughtful about how we address things like mental health or addiction or poverty. And, and what we see in our policing and how it's done these days is it's just not very effective in, in addressing any of those problems. And far too often when we see a spike in deaths caused by fentanyl or we see um, a spike in, in, in a number of these things, the first thing we typically turn to as a society is let's arrest more people, let's incarcerate more people, let's use the punitive arm of the government even more. Uh, but what we but we see and what, what the evidence base is, is coming out more and more is people like, uh, is organizations like Justice Innovation Lab and others people working in this field and trying to say, well, what is actually working? What is actually reducing violence? What is actually um, helping deal with some of the problems that, that we want to deal with? Um, and, and I think we need to fundamentally rethink how we police, how we, how we dedicate resources to tackling these problems. The criminal legal system is probably the worst people to be in charge of mental health. Like we, we just should not be the ones involved. And yet every day we keep sending police officers out to these interactions. It's not surprising. Um, number one, we train our police officers. You, you shoot first, ask questions later, you're protected. That is the assumption built into much of the law. Uh, and so, and it's built into how they're trained. And so it's not at all surprising that, that we see these interactions that, that result in people getting shot.
on the one hand. On the other hand, our system is not, if one believes that the criminal legal system is supposed to say that there's some morality that's being violated, we're enforcing some sort of moral norms. And we see actions by people who clearly have have mental health problems. It's just the wrong place to be. We can't punish our way out of this. And did you found the uh, Justice Innovation Lab as the result of the Walter Scott case? Yes. You know, I had been at that point, I had been at the Justice Department for about 14 years, and I had come to this realization that I, I just didn't think that prosecuting police, I was as important as it was, it wasn't going to solve the problem. And I wanted to take on some of the more systemic problems. Way too often when we see something bad happen in our system, the first thing we want to say is, well, people acting with bad intent. And a lot of times that is true. There's plenty of people out there acting with bad intent. But what I saw traveling across the country in the 14 years I was a prosecutor was so many of the bad results that we see are baked into the system itself. Part of Michael Slager's defense was, listen, I stopped Walter Scott for a broken taillight, not because I'm racist, but because the police department was telling me I need to stop lots of people and I need to write lots of tickets. That's a system problem. Of course, that doesn't justify the shooting. But but if what we want to do is, is change the relationship between policing and community, one of the things we have to change is how it is that we're interacting with the community. Who are we stopping and why? So often people talk about pretextual traffic stops as a way to identify and proactively fight crime. But, but what the evidence shows is it's a terrible way to fight crime. I mean, they're, they're finding weapons usually less than 3% of the time. We did a study in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was less than 1% of the time they were finding contraband. And yet they're having all of these interactions with the community that can be tense, that can ultimately go violent, and to what end? And I think we're just at this point where we have to we have to think more thoughtfully about the resources that we're using. We need police, police play a role. We need courts, they play a role. And we need a lot more help outside the legal system, whether that's beds, uh, inpatient drug treatment beds, or better mental health reaction squads. Um, we need all of these things. And I believe they will surely be more effective in helping us solve the problem. It will be more cost effective. Uh, and I think ultimately it will also be way more humane. Well, that kind of answered my last question as well, which was going to be, you know, how you go from a, a federal prosecutor to uh, doing the work at Justice Innovation Lab. So I'll leave it at that. I want to thank you for coming on our show. Uh, fascinating story. I look forward. I, I, I swear I've seen your book mentioned for a couple of years, it feels like. I know it just came out recently, but it's definitely on my list to read. Well, thanks. Thanks for spreading the word. You know, I, I wrote the book for lots of different audiences. I wrote for people who wanted to understand exactly what was happening in the justice system and how it's failing us. Uh, I wanted to write for a more general audience who might be new to some of these stories to learn more about the legal system and about uh, policing in America. Uh, and I wanted to, to reach out to the people who were in fact investigating these kinds of cases so that they could do a better job. My, my hope is that it, it helps expose a lot of what's wrong in our justice system, but also, and I think to my point more, more importantly, how we can begin to do something different so that we can create a future that we, that we want to be a part of. Thank you. We've been talking with Jared Fishman. He's the author of the book, Fire on the Levee, founder of the Justice Innovation Lab, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.
Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.